everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast on the Genre Equality Channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Hadi. I'm Isa. Um, we have a big episode for you this month. Um, I know like genre has been a bit light on big titles over the past few months, mm. but big superhero blockbusters are back, including big animation from Pixar. So um, at the very least, we got a lot to talk about, uh, particularly with the title that everyone is so hyped to see one of uh, one of the big new superhero blockbusters from DC that broke box office records and basically saved cinema in the United mm-hmm, States for mm-hmm. the month of March. We'll be talking about Matt Reeves' new version of the Batman alongside the second season of one of our pandemic favorites, Upload, uh, is back. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about the boys' um, animated spin-off called Diabolical, mm-hmm. which is a very Star Wars visions aesthetic on the world of the boys, including um, other stuff such as Turning Red, uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once, After Yang, DMZ, the new Big Mouth spin-off. Aisa is back with Jujutsu Kaisen, Zero the Movie, yeah. alongside other TV shows, in his anime corner. Um, but let's begin with the biggest title of them all, man. Um, the Batman. This is the latest iteration of the Cape Crusader by Matt Reeves, and it stars Robert Pattinson as Year 2 Batman. This particular movie is obviously more David Fincher inspired, mm-hmm. finally getting the big screen Batman to return to his detective roots from the comics. This was a bit of a blatant um, Zodiac or Seven type new noir story <laughs> with Paul Dano's The Riddler as the sadistic serial killer who leaves behind a trail of cryptic clues. Mm-hmm. Alongside him, we have a solid rogues gallery in supporting roles such as Zoe Kravitz's show-stealing Catwoman, Colin Farrell's unrecognizable The Penguin, uh, John Turturro, um, an inspired casting choice for yeah. Carmen for Code. Uh, the Batman slowly works to uncover this the long Halloween slash hush type plot um, and he unshockingly finds corruption in Gotham City's institutions, mm-hmm. <laughs> but also shockingly finds corruption possibly within his own family. Um, this is the most grounded, frequently brutal, nearly three-hour film noir that is unlike any other Batman film we've ever had before. Um, let's begin with you, Isa. What did you think of the Batman? Oh, man. Uh, I, I went in with great expectations for this. Mm. And I think it it surpassed my expectations in terms of like it wasn't what I was expecting. I think, uh, and you know what we got instead of what I expected from a Batman movie following along the heels of the Nolan verse, right, was yep. an ext- an even grittier and even darker, uh, noir mm. mystery story, uh, spanning three hours. Uh, portions of it I really really did enjoy. I think they didn't nail a lot of like the aesthetic I think they did nail a lot of the music despite it being a bit repetitive at near the end um, but yeah it is what it is uh, unfortunately we didn't really get much of character development I think for any of the characters uh, but I thought the actors did a good job all around and I thought the story unfolded in the way that the genre requires it to so I did have a good time uh, what about you Hadi? um Honestly, hands down, Robert Pattinson is my favorite Batman right now. Oh, nice. Agree, agree. I think he's the top actor who has ever played Batman. Yeah, <laughs> but Batman, not Bruce Wayne, huh? Batman. Yeah, yeah. Batman. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, what do you think about emo Bruce Wayne, though? I I just feel that there was not enough Bruce Wayne uh, moments to really like give him like or dislike it. Yeah, to like you know, or dislike there's it. There's no. No, that's yeah. fair. Yeah, there's there's just like a few minutes of Bruce Wayne, and it wasn't enough for me yeah. to decide whether he was a good Bruce Wayne or not. I think the best Bruce Wayne is probably. Michael Keaton? 
Michael Keaton, yeah. He had the suave to, you know, dance dance with the the woman in the the, the ball and all that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah, yeah. Um the, yeah, the suave. Okay. Um <laughs> purposely, well, purposely. Well, Mr. Suave the song last time. <laughs> what do you think about uh this Batman though? I mean the movie, not the Oh, uh, so okay, so anyway, um the story was all right. Um mm. it wasn't uh, uh it was very expected detective noir, which I like. Mm. Um, very grounded in reality, mostly. Mm-hmm. You know, with uh, and I like how bleak. I think this is the bleakest since the Joker. Uh, where Gotham City has been. Uh, there wasn't a single joke in the film. I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, and it was just uh, that that idea of corruption, uh, just. In every single part of the the the, 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 the city, you know, the rot everywhere was very well mm. well um, portrayed, lah. It's very LA noir, yeah. Like every LA noir does this, exactly. and the Batman should do it, and yeah. they did it so well. Uh, yeah. in that sense, um, I love the supporting characters like Zoe Kravitz. I think kudos, one of the best Catwoman. Mm-hmm. Like she and mm-hmm. Michelle Pfeiffer are now fighting the top spot. Ooh, um, yeah, and yeah, and um. The Riddler is one of the most underrated villains, you know, because he's usually very zany, very Jim Carrey-esque, yep. right? Yeah. As the portrayal. Yep. So this Riddler's portrayal, I felt, was um, scary. Zodiac Killer. Yeah, very Zodiac, Zodiac killer. killer, very, very scary. And and I like how the, the pieces formed, you know, how the Riddler and the relationship between the Riddler and Batman mm-hmm. brilliantly, brilliantly uh, formulated as the movie went on, a lot of people like to say this movie was different because it approached Batman from a detective angle. I would say the biggest difference between this and other Batman is that this is the only film that addresses Batman's or Bruce Wayne's privilege. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that, that that's actually, to me, the strongest point of the film. Right? This is the only film that addresses that, like, oh, you're so sad, you're an orphan, darkness, no parents, <laughs> as the Lego movie that, yeah. uh, pointed out, right? Yeah. But... You got fucking money, man. Um, other offense like the Riddler did not, you mm-hmm. know. So that's what it's kind of addressing here, lah. Um, I think this past decade, right, has seen a slew of Batman filmmakers capturing inspiration from iconic films. Yeah. They are they are remaking their favorite films and just inserting Batman in there. <laughs> uh, Christopher Nolan, uh, for example, wanted to do Michael Mann's Heat with Batman, and that was The Dark Knight. Thought Thought Phillips wanted to do Taxi Driver, uh, mixed with The King of Comedy, and that was Joker. Um, and now Matt Reeves wanted to do Seven and Zodiac. Uh, and, you know, the Seven Zodiac neo-noir, just with Batman in it. And I think in all those instances, including Nolan's review at The Dark Knight, mm-hmm. the end result was less than its inspiration. Oh, yeah. Um, I think The Dark Knight is a great film, don't get me wrong. I think it's an but amazing it's film. It's not as good as he. <laughs> uh, Joker is not as good as Taxi Driver or The King of Comedy. That's easier to say. Mm. And The Batman is not as good as Seven or Zodiac. Yeah. Okay, I give you that. The only instance where this has ever worked was when Lord and Miller decided to do the Lego movie, but with Batman. <laughs> that was the only Batman revision that actually surpassed the original. Yeah, but because you know, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's because they really yeah. kept true to the essence of Batman. See, oh, it's from nineteen sixty six Batman all the way to now. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think of all the examples that I mentioned, this is probably the one that falls the most short. Oh. Um. That's not to say this was a bad movie. No, no, no. It was quite it was quite a solid crime procedural. Uh, but one that never reaches the creative or emotional heights of other Batman movies mm-hmm. or of Seven or of Zodiac. Is it successful as David Fincher cosplay? 
I think yes, it is. <laughs> but at the end of the day, David Fincher cosplay is not David Fincher. Yeah. Okay. Um, Robert Benson is a great Batman. Zoe Kravitz was especially good as Catwoman. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Colin Farrell did a great job at really turning himself into the Penguin. Yeah. Credit to the prosthetics and makeup department there. Um, John Turturro is an inspired choice for coming for because you know Com- Falcon has always been this big bruiser type. Yeah, which yeah. is very yeah. clever. also at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, John Turturro is essentially great in everything he's ever done from the Big Lebowski to Transformers to, the, to Transform- anything. <laughs> like. we'll, 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 we'll talk about a 10 out of 10 John Turturro performance <laughs> next month with, uh, with Severance, but um, this, this was great as well. Yeah. And again, I'm not saying this is a bad movie, but it also doesn't deliver the best version of the dark, gritty, sure. world's greatest detective story yeah. we comic book fans have always dreamed of. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's a gritty movie about a guy dressed as a bat Solving incredibly simple riddles, mm-hmm. misunderstanding basic Spanish. Oh, that was the worst. And, and then, very, very luckily, Catwoman solves the crime for him by delivering him a suspect and a confession. Yeah. Um, it's a movie also with bizarre two third acts. What was that? <laughs> the entire terrorist climax ending felt like a sequel to an already completed movie. It felt like they um, forgot that this, they don't. Oh, I think we should make a superhero movie now. Bro, the, the, everything was solved already, bro. Like, the, you didn't need this. But anyway, whatever. Lah. Um, what are the strengths and weaknesses of Batman to you, Isa? Uh, I definitely love the aesthetic, right? Mm-hmm. Of Gotham mm-hmm. in particular. I think this is the most alive the city yeah. has felt in any iteration of Batman. Uh, yeah. And I think we get that a lot from the comic books. I mean, like, having years and years of history to kind of build up that. But every iteration of Batman has a very unique take on what Gotham City is like and how that plays a big role mm. in his, you know, uh, in his kind of, like, caped avenging that he's doing. Uh, so that I really, really liked. I like the way that he's kind of, the, the way that the city is populated with all these kind of, like, miscreants and people just trying to get by to survive. I think mm-hmm. this is the most fleshed out it's been. Uh, so I really enjoyed that and the whole aesthetic of that is cool uh, I do like this Batman suit uh, mm-hmm. Hits and I had a disagreement whether or not the muscle car fit for the Batmobile uh, it does y'all shut up I, 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 I love yeah, the muscle so, car so I, I, th- I thought it was a bit strange but uh, you know it is cool don't get me wrong like it is yeah, really no. cool I don't know if it fit that was my main kind have of have you thing. not seen the Dark Knight yeah stupid car Exactly, like but, we have so many like strange Batmobiles, and eventually his was um uh, what was it you said his like all of the Batmobiles I, I, were different. I said that they've tried every type of car. Except they've they've done this, they've done the sleek sports yeah. car. They've done a tank, you know, <laughs> but you know, an all American muscle car, like uh, a very fuel inefficient type of car that that we all love. I mean, fuck the environment. Yeah. Uh, is is what I wanted to see the Batman have. Oh, come on, this guy, the, the, the bat- This guy is. Yeah, I mean, this guy is so emo <laughs> and he's so like, he's so like toxic masculine. Like a muscle car is what is what it should have. And like the, the the intro to the to the bad movie was so fucking scary. Come on, it, that is true. I mean, I'm not taking away from any of that. I just thought it was an odd choice, but I mean, it worked last. <laughs> it did for sure. Uh, I think yep. for the first time we got a Catwoman with proper motivations. Yes. Right. Mm. That was missing from Hathaway's version. That was missing from Pfeiffer's version. That was missing from. Oh, no, Halle Berry no, okay. didn't even have... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Halle Berry doesn't count as Catwoman for me, so like we'll just leave her out of this. Uh, yep. But I really, really enjoyed the moments in time where she... Uh, when she was not Catwoman, actually. Mm, right? Like, same. I think 
um, Kravitz is a fantastic up-and-coming kind of actress and you know uh, with her performance for the Batman you know she's someone to look out for uh, she's proven yeah. that she can be a sort of like enigmatic, but at the same time naive young beautiful intelligent and all of those things in one and on top of that she's Catwoman I'm like okay cool now that Got it. is that feels like a proper representation of what Selena should be if not you know, like the most accurate um, in, in her backstory and, uh, and all of that. Mm, yeah. Okay. So those okay. are the two things that I really liked. I like the Batman sure. suit. I like the overall aesthetic. I did find the the musical score and it's repetitive enough to get very tired in the end, right? Yeah. Like it didn't really serve to kind of like underscore the portions where, you know, there was supposed to be kind of like more dramatic tension. Usually when you have a similar refrain over the course of a movie, right? It's supposed mm-hmm. to highlight like certain points or supposed to bring about a certain theme. It didn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the time, I was just simply distracted by the fact that in my head, it was um, The Empire Strikes Back, right? Um, just because the notes were pretty much the same. <laughs> Uh, bom, 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 bom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like after the first three notes, right, in my head it continues as Star Wars, but you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it it was it was a bit breaking uh for me uh, immersion wise whenever that sort of I fell into that. Um mm. yeah, so I think like those are the general strengths for this particular movie. Um mm. yeah, but for like a detective film, like just way too many coincidences, you know, like for the world's greatest detective, you're basically handed, like like you mentioned, right? Catwoman does the work. She captures the suspect. <laughs> she does all of the all of the heavy lifting. A lot of the The confession is on the phone recording that yeah. she gave him. Yeah, which yeah. is insane, right? And then like yeah. even It's very convenient now. Yeah, you know, yeah. even for that policeman to just happen to be there in the room at the time when he he goes back <sighs> and then like hands him stuff. Then I'm just like, are you serious? You know, just because, like, he can guess every riddle, like, in a moment's notice while everybody else can't figure it out doesn't mean that he should be getting a free pass, right? Mm. Uh, so. Like, I, I can forgive the whole simple riddle thing because it's for people like me, a bit dumb-dumb, you know? So, like, we if too complex a riddle, so a bit hard for us to follow. Yeah, no, for so sure. So, I, I don't mind that the riddles are a bit simplified. Yeah. But... Oh my god, some of the things like given to him is just ridiculous. Hundred <laughs> percent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The the future Commissioner Gordon, the future world's greatest detective, mm-hmm. um, do not know the difference between L and La. Yeah, that was hilarious. Is, boy, do I'm not saying like I'm fl- I'm a fluent Spanish speaker. I've like been to Barcelona a couple of times, but <laughs> I mean, cu- I mean, cu- come on, la. come on. <laughs> Oh boy. Um yeah, um what about you, Hadi? Like final like strengths, weaknesses before you, oh. know, you, you give your rating here. Uh definitely the strengths I agree with you. Uh yep. I love not only the suit, but how they, they use like the footsteps mm. to call like he, that's the signature in this movie is the footsteps of Batman. Yep. He felt scary, yeah. yeah. Like chills. Um apart from that, yeah, Batmobile we already talked about. You know, I love that that whole scary monster um intro to the Batmobile you know, the mm. sound was just scary and all that uh, mm. unnecessary fucking chase but really cool <laughs> right it's a, it, it, it was great it, it was, was a very great. like um, French connection yes. Ford versus Ferrari in a type like you know you put the camera on the car yes. so it makes it feel visceral yes. and you're in the car yeah I, I like I that style that. of it unnecessary yeah. but awesome mm. um, yeah. you know just people died you know, for no reason in that chase but yeah whatever <laughs> A bunch of random track drivers were murdered in one <laughs> exactly. yeah. It's like the whole... Ca- I don't know that I can never... Anyway, um, 
that and uh, penguins are uh, tie into the story was interesting. Yeah, whatever. Mm. But that that I like the twist that you brought back the Wayne history, mm. the Wayne mm. and Arkham history. You know, into the whole thing, the whole like uh, that that secret journalist that was. Yeah, you know, it was like the the hush storyline like, in the comic book. Yeah, so that was brilliant. Like to bring all those little elements in to say that look, your family in all uh, uh innocent in this, you know, like they are cul- as culpable to the corruption mm. of Gotham. Yeah, and yeah, and that was something that I don't think has because all the previous Batman's, um, Thomas Wayne has always been kind of like a paragon. Yes, you mm. know, and never really explored as. Uh, part of the the problem as well, mm. because a lot of the times we forget that capitalism is the root cause of a lot of corruption. Yeah, and mm. rich people are not paragons. There's no such you know in in reality it's it's rare, <laughs> you know. Yep. So it, it's good that that there was some sort of like blemish to this whole like Thomas um Thomas Wayne being good and all 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 um that he's also still human, that yeah. he's also mm. culpable to making. Um, bad decisions, lah. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and yeah. So tying the whole Falcon thing was brilliant because you know, again, that's with the comics, lah. Yeah, you know where mm-hmm. Thomas Wayne and Falcon actually had an agreement, lah. Mm-hmm. So I like that, and um, yeah. Overall, I feel the strengths was that it highlighted things that was never highlighted before. Um, the weaknesses, I think, is the same thing as you guys, lah. Mm. That third act right, really right. threw me off, lah. <laughs> you know, the entrance with the explosions and all that. I'm like, what the fuck? Why are we watching the Avengers now? You know when he entered with all the explosions, yeah, yeah. like unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of the third act seems very reminiscent of like actually a lot of movie. He, it seems like Mad Reese wanted to expound upon what Nolan already explored: the corruption, the grittiness, the the tale that Batman inspire. What Batman inspires is just as bad as the crime that he's fighting. Yeah. You know, um, and you know, Gotham City being blown up, whether it's the bridges in the Dark Knight Rises, you mm-hmm. know, and or. The flooding here, it all seems very derivative it to is, me. Yeah. Um, so nothing special no. there. I think I would overall rate this a 6 out of 10. Uh, what about you, Isa? Final thoughts and rating? Yeah, I'm going to give it a 6 out of 10 as well. I think it's a good Batman movie. I don't think it's a great movie in general. Yeah, okay, mm. okay. Uh, what about you, Heidi? I mean, after hearing all this from you guys and agreeing my wife, was like, my wife actually agrees with you all a lot on this. Oh. Um, okay. I will say a 6.5 for me. Okay. Okay. Wow, okay, okay. Um, I will say, like, as a final thought, um, I think Michael Giacchino was very busy with Spider-Man No Way Home. <laughs> um, and I think he sort of phoned this one in. He was just like, oh, why don't we play that Nirvana song three times? Yeah. Um, just to, you know, you know, why not? Yeah, the Nirvana um, song was played so many times. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was our review for The Batman. It was and like boy, immigrant song during Thor. Yeah, yeah. Quite, quite a lot, <laughs> la, like, but... I mean... Nirvana has a lot of great songs. Mm-hmm. This was not one of them. And Immigrant Song is way better than that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No I offense agree. to Nirvana. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I saw a lot of people on my Twitter mentions last month mm-hmm. um, whereby, you know, I sort of derided um, some very popular titles like Demon Slayer and Peacemaker and Book of Boba Fett and Legend of Box Machina. And boy, mm-hmm. wait till I tell you that Turning Red is a better film than Batman. I'm, I think I'm going to be labeled as woke or whatever, but whatever. Okay, never mind. <laughs> Dude, Turning Red, why were we not reviewing Turning Red? We are. We, we are. It, we it, are. It, you, you, you can stick around after. You can stick around after diabolical because uh, rate is the first topic of quick hits. So you can chime in on that one. As oh well. yes, please. I love that show. Oh, awesome. Um, but next up though, we have the return of, after almost two years from its series premiere in May twenty twenty, 
upload. Yay. Finally back on Amazon <laughs> Prime for season, in season two. Um, if you've forgotten what it's about, I don't blame you. It's been a while. But you can listen to our glowing, super positive review of season one on Genre Equality 30. Mm. But for now, here's the gist. Upload is a sci-fi comedy from Greg Daniels, who was the showrunner of The Simpsons between mm-hmm. seasons three and ten, which was the best. Prime Simpsons. Uh, he was the creator of The King of the Hill. He was the creator of the US version of The Office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he co-created Parks and Recreation with Mike Schur. Mm-hmm. Um, we follow an app developer named Nathan, played by Robbie Amell, who is uploaded into a virtual afterlife called Lakeside by his girlfriend. It, uh, it uses its familiar sci-fi premise of a digital afterlife to craft an incredibly funny anti-capitalist satire about how technology and class divisions and your financial woes continue to trouble you well after death. Mm-hmm. Um, you see, this digital reality is neither paradise nor damnation because your wealth on earth determines how your idyllic afterlife can be or how idyllic your hereafter can mm-hmm. be. The service is really just a means for companies to keep profiting from your consciousness as you continue to make purchases long after death. The afterlife is just an app with pop-up ads and different subscription tiers. Mm-hmm. You're programmed with all your earthly urges. So if you want to eat, you got to buy food. If you want new clothes, you got to buy new clothes. There's a lot of lag time when the system is stressed. It's far from ideal. Upload is really about the rot of capitalism mm-hmm. and the show excels at using fantastical concepts to examine real-life corporate greed and culture. Mm-hmm. At the end of season one, we learn that Lakeview isn't all that it seems and neither is Nathan. Uh, and neither is his death. Apparently, he was developing a free version of the Afterlife app and he may or may not have been killed. Mm-hmm. There's a fun love triangle between himself and his angel worker, Nora, played by Andy Allo, and his seemingly shallow girlfriend, Ingrid, played by Allegra Edwards. There's a fantastic murder mystery twist. Mm-hmm. Um, Ingrid shows up in the finale, having uploaded herself into Lakeview. Oh, did she? Um, or did she? And in season two, Upload maintains its core programming <laughs> as this kind of charming, star-crossed lover's story mm-hmm. in its sophomore season. But with more of an emphasis on the murder mystery and an escalation into a class warfare narrative, if anything, this is kind of the opposite of a sophomore slump. Yeah. We get new fun characters like Mateo, who is the leader of this anti-tech group called the Lutz, mm-hmm. as good well name. as a new good name, yeah, as well as a, a new angel in training, Tinsley, oh. who is also obsessed with Nathan. Yeah. Um, the season does a great job of adding new characters without forgetting the rest. I love that the series dove deeper into goofball Luke's yes, life. Me too. Um, that is actually know, quite selfless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we learned that while on, on the outside he seems like a big kid, but he's actually a leader, a friend, and a military man that all his buddies respect. Upload also continues to embrace its bizarre sci-fi postulation in many dark ways, which is where the fun lies. Mm-hmm. Like for starters, Nathan and Ingrid seriously consider adopting a baby in the afterlife, which is a farcical Ooh. digital creation by Horizon. Yeah. Um, what better way to make eternity seem fruitful than the promise of an undying family? Mm-hmm. And in case there was any doubt, the computerized infants look just as creepy as they sound. Exactly. It is genuinely the scariest thing I've ever seen on screen. Oh, <laughs> um, Horizon is starting to keep and sell the upload's thoughts and dreams as well. Mm-hmm. Whoever is uploaded, right? Big data, man. Their thoughts and dreams. Big data. And they're starting to own them like IP. Yep. For example, they're selling wet dreams to porn sites, for example. Yeah. You know? um, the satirical and brilliantly reflective of upload is still a genuine joy to watch. Do you think so, Hadi? Uh, yes. Again, I, it, it's one of those rare series that do not suffer from a sophomore slump. Thank God. Yeah. Um, yep. Again, seven episodes, really good because why? Tight as hell. Uh, very fast, very yeah. fast, easy to watch. Um, all characters have been uh, given a new lease of uh, development. 
mm-hmm. especially Luke. Luke has become my favorite character. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and his love for Nathan is so awesome. Like, like best, you know, like that. that he's like the golden retriever, you know. That, that just yes, Mr. Peanut Butter. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, and so yeah. he's uh, and I I like that. You know, he's always uh up for the adventures that Nathan wants to do. Uh, yep. you know, the whole like going around New York and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that his he still has his crush. He, he this huge crush. Like it was, it's like you know how how uh, Nathan and and Nora has this whole thing right going on and now. Luke's and his angels um relationship mm-hmm. is the exact opposite. Yeah, like he loves her and all that, and has a huge crush on her, but like totally not reciprocal. Mm-hmm. Even though like the angel kind of respects him a lot more after finding out more about him and and kind mm-hmm. of getting to know him a bit deeper, Yeah, yeah, but the whole like yep. porn thing was hilarious. The whole wet dream, uh, dream mm-hmm. thing that was that was happening. I love that. Um, yeah. I liked how Upload continued to build on that that uh, murder mystery thing because that was only at the end of the first season that it kind of like, uh, swiveled in. And so yeah. we it became more of like a investigative thing going on la, where yeah. we have Nora coming in to, to really help unknowingly Nathan mm-hmm. in her yeah. own uh, in her own way. La. Uh, yeah, I'm quite yeah. curious to see where the whole police officer thing comes in because he was the, the Japanese cybercrime cyber guy, yeah. guy was there but not really there. Mm-hmm. Like he's in the periphery throughout the entire series but he hasn't, I mean, I'm guessing it'll be developed more in season 3, I guess. Yes, um, season 2 was cut short because of pandemic production. Um, it yeah. was basically halted like, because of the pandemic uh, which is why it's only 7 and not the original planned 12 episodes. Yeah. So I think they really had a lot of plans for the cyber crimes guy and the LUTs and everything yeah. that just never came together. I, I'm not holding it against Upload no, because no, no. I know pandemic production can be very difficult and that's why it was uh, halted. Uh, but yeah, if there was one complaint about season 2, it's just that it felt incomplete. Yeah. But because of extenuating circumstances. Yeah, and by, it's still okay because it is in the periphery but you kind of can tell that they're, they're saving it for the future. And they have plans for yeah. it. Yeah, so yeah. that's fine. Um... I, I just like the overall message about, you know, the whole that life and death and capitalism thing all mm. mixed into one. It's very uh, futuristic, but at the same time, grounded in a lot of reality. Mm. Very Black Mirror-ish, lah, I guess. And yeah. even though this might be the more light-hearted Black Mirror, right? Mm. It kind of has this darkness about it, yep. you know, that, that I, I enjoy. Um yep. and, and you know the whole ro- I and I like the whole Robin Hood aspect that they brought into uh Lakeview using through through Nathan and Luke like, for example. Yes, yeah. yes. Um I mean the show is great at you know the good place style philosophical or, or accidental conundrums. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite reach the good place level, but it nah, tries yeah, and yeah. I I like I like that it does. Um on top of that, it has multiple love stories to get invested in. <laughs> um so the love triangle from season from season one is extended. Yeah without feeling cheap, you know, yes. like the will they, won't they, like it doesn't feel cheap. Um, the series also explores what love is across different planes of existence mm. through um, who is in whose body, which different mind or which different minds in different bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be love in a romantic sense or a familial sense or a friendship sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case with Luke and uh, and Robbie and while Nora and Nathan still have like this really sizzling chemistry, you know, they are, I guess what the kids say, endgame. Mm-hmm. Um, Allegra Edwards, who plays Nathan's girlfriend, mm-hmm. I think does a fucking fantastic job of making this hoity-toity, rich, vapid, shallow, beautiful blonde one of the most endearing characters yeah. on the series. I'm glad the show keeps giving her unseen depth and vulnerability. Yeah. Um, 
On the flip side, Eddie Ello's Nora is still the show's kind of most appealing character. Nora has a lot to deal with. Mm-hmm. She was just recently um, almost assassinated. Mm-hmm. She becomes more involved in the anti-tech cult, mm-hmm. I guess, determined to bring down Lakeview. Plus, she has to deal with her career. And her dad. Romantic complica- her dad, romantic complications. Um, she is the driving hero of the story. And she is actually the only one actively pulling the conspiracy strings on the outside, mm-hmm. you know, trying mm-hmm. to unravel mm-hmm. it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, however, Nora isn't always in control of Nora's avatar, which lets Ello play multiple characters or specifically Ello playing, Th- playing Tinsley, yeah. which is great. Um, it's really impressive that it's so recognizable that it's someone else yeah. in Nora's body or Nora's avatar. So great acting there. Yeah. I think in the end, uploads inviting and disarming charm takes audiences through the complexity of being a person, which is something Greg Daniels shows have always done very well and it continues to deliver sharp commentary and solidifying its cogent approach to topical big tech issues while expanding its earnest elements. Um, Upload is the rare series that can make a big picture point about the way we live now mm-hmm. and might in the future, but doesn't get bogged down by its messaging yeah. or its world building. I think it remains grounded in characters and relationships mm. with side gags and deep-cutting wit mm-hmm. as a bonus to the emotional story. You know, okay. um, what, what about you? Any final thoughts before we give our rating? Um, again, beautiful characters, as usual, uh, expected from Greg... Uh, Craig Daniels. Daniels. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, production, right? Um, yep. So yeah, great characters all around, really deep and you are really invested in everybody. Even the ones you hate, like Ingrid, you, know, you can't really hate her. You kind of understand mm. why she's doing this, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I can't wait to see where they go because really I'm quite curious how, I mean, after the the, the ending of, of episode 7, I'm like, oh no. <laughs> there are two defense now, spoiler alert. Yeah, I know. Oh, sorry? There are two Nathans now. Oh, yeah. So I'm kind of curious where that's going. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, the, the whole idea of like consciousness about reality and all that stuff. Yeah. I cannot the wait. The whole um, ship of Theseus thing that Vision was talking yeah. about is uh, probably in play for season three. Yeah. If there is a flaw, mm. it's that its villains feel very non-specific. Yeah. It means like, a big corporation with no face. Yeah, like no, I I don't mean that. It's just that their their villainy is very generic, you know. Oh, like yeah, billionaire villains like David Choke are one note. Mateo's fight against big tech is like very cliche and uncomplicated. 100% agree. Even Nations, uh, sorry, Nathan's mission statement, uh, of wanting to help the poor seems very kind of broad. Um, very Robin Hood. Like, yeah, it's just like it doesn't really have any, um, specificity to it. Like, it's just very like generic, mm. and it, that's probably the only flaw that I can find with uh upload so far. And and of course, it's truncated uh pandemic afflicted season. I like, made it feel incomplete in mm-hmm. the sense, which is why I'm giving it a seven point five out of ten. What about yeah, you? Yeah, seven point five sounds about about right as well. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Okay, cool. Um, next we're gonna be talking about the boys presents diabolical. Mm. Um, like the Animatrix or What If or Star Wars Visions before it, mm. The Boys Diabolical is a loosely canonical animated anthology set within the delightfully vulgar and violent universe of The Boys. Yeah. Like those aforementioned shows, this one proves yet again that most franchises can benefit from giving a, a group of diverse creative voices free reign yeah. to use the power of animation to tell unique stories. Exactly. Though not every episode is a winner, it still stands as a hilarious, gross sexy, hyper-violent addition to the Vought landscape. And while it is imperfect, it's still a must-watch for both fans of The Boys and the kind of subversive superhero stories we don't get to see too often. Yeah. Uh, Diabolical consists of eight episodes running at around eight to ten minutes each. 
Um, they all take place within the world of the boys and they are not strictly canon, at least not in the sense that they will heavily impact the main series yeah, story yeah. going forward. That means that looking for hints of what happens next in the story of Billy and Huey, uh, you know, like if you're there for that, you're not going to get that. Yeah. Uh, with the exception of the finale, which is very Correct. canon. Yeah. But everything else is, uh, take it or leave it as standalones, you know. Yeah. Um, and if you're open to just watching some fun, very breezy eight-minute stories with light connections to the main plot, they should find a lot to love in the in in these like very freewheeling uh, episodes like uh, like they have here. Um, it's kind of like Star Wars Visions, as I said. Most episodes follow a similar beat in that they follow someone exposed to Compound V, uh, the substance that gives people their powers, and things go very very wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of the boys diabolical, Hadi? Uh, first off, I love the the variety of animation styles. We have a lot yeah, of Yeah, that. That, that, that is the big highlight. Yeah, yeah, like from a Looney Tunes-esque kind of thing to the, yeah. the, 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 the more thing, the, like the more, um, I'm Rick and Morty, duh, right? Because <laughs> Justin, Justin right? Roiland. Yeah. yeah, dude, dude the Justin Roiland's episode was a Rick and Morty episode. Exactly. Disguised yeah. as a boy's episode. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that was episode yeah. two, if I'm not wrong. So to, yeah, I was like, wow, this is just straight up a boy's a, a, a Rick and Morty episode. Correct, exactly, you know? Yeah. And then to like more enemy style kind of thing, uh, all the way to, you know, a traditional American uh, animation. Uh. So I like... In- invincible style yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So I like that. Yeah. I like that, that variety we have. And with that, the variety of stories that were, were given to us in very, yep. very, 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 very bite-sized size um, mm-hmm. um, uh, episodes, lah. Uh. Yeah. Uh, each explored, uh, each kind of expanded the world a little more. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, with with Compound V, uh, social media, um, you know, um, divorce, you know, yep, like, uh, and how they are, and how it affects the world, uh, and how these things, you know, are in this world, uh. I like that. I mean, Compound B, if it were to exist, it would, it would work its way into everything from social media to beauty products yeah. to recreational everything. pharmaceuticals, you know, yeah. everything, right? Yeah. Yeah, explores that, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, to, to medical miracles and all that. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so overall, I like that. Uh, I like the variety given. I like the world building uh, and all that. Um, I enjoyed the last episode just to give an idea of the Homelander's origin a bit more. Yeah, Eric Kripke, the creator of The Boys, actually said that like they didn't plan for any of the Diabolical episodes to be canon, but once they saw the finale, they were like, yeah, this one is 100% canon. Yeah, and so yeah. good for it. Uh, overall, uh, it's a good little taste before June 3rd. Yeah, I can't wait for the new boys. Yeah, yeah so yeah, um, I, I, I think I highly recommend this. I mean, it's not perfect or anything like that. Um, there's little flaws here and there. They're just boring episodes, you know, as usual. In an anthology, mm-hmm. not not all perfect or all of a high level. You know, there's varying levels of uh, quality. Yeah, uh, but that's fine because overall, I still had a lot of fun, and also because it's very very short. You know, yeah, even the bad episodes are like five minutes. Exactly, you know, whatever lah. Yeah, 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 I can yeah. get through that. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, one of my favorite episodes is probably one of the most fan service fan service heavy episodes, which, which has the the original comic creator Garth Ennis writing the story. Ah, okay. Uh, with gloriously gory results, the episode features an art style reminiscent of Derek Robertson's illustrations yeah, in the comics, yeah. and it even has Simon Pegg, who inspired Huey's original design as the as Huey's voice. Finally, um, it it was very sad because when the boys finally went live action, uh-huh. right, Simon Pegg was, was everybody's. Old. Everybody's dream casting for Huey aged out of the role, so he had to play his, he had to play Huey's dad. Yeah. 
but this episode kind of serves as the fulfillment of that, you know, fan casting from Wizard Magazine, like back in the nineties. Like, you know, I I like that. But the very best episodes to me were the Looney Tunes episodes. Uh, in you know, it had great like Animaniacs uh, composers uh, on the soundtrack yeah. as well. So it really, really, really felt very Looney Tunes. Yeah. Uh, but one episode that I super loved is the one that is inspired by Korean watercolor paintings. Yes, know? I know the show. Um, it's really nice about the the man trying to save, save his, his wife, wife who's who, who's dying of cancer yeah. and he's trying to use on the for penultimate it. episode. Yeah. Yes, you know, like I really, really love that, and it features uh the Oscar winning woman, the Korean woman, uh Yo Jun Oh, I think yeah. from uh. From from Minari as yeah. as the voice of the dying woman, and um, I think it's and very the watchmaker, great. yeah, and the, sorry, yeah, the key yeah. maker from the Matrix, <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah. It's actually weirdly enough written and directed by Andy Samberg, who is not known for this. Wait, very dramatic. what? And yeah, Brooklyn Nine Nine's Andy Samberg, uh, Palm Springs Andy Samberg, wow. uh, Lon- Lonely Island Andy Samberg actually wrote this one. <laughs> oh wow! I had no idea. Neither did I. Yeah, it was it was really good, and and Yoon Yoo Jung, sorry, I finally got a name right. Yoon Yoo Jung from Minari is really great in it as well. Uh, the funniest episode was the Rick and Morty episode, like, obviously. Yeah. But um, I think Diabolical doesn't reach the same heights as the main show. Nah. Um, but the un the unhinged and varied use of animation still more than carves out a place for this as being a bloody good appetizer until season three arrives. Agreed. Um, not super consistent, but plaudits must give be given to the creativity on display mm-hmm. here. Um, seven out of ten for me. What about you? Final thoughts and ratings. Uh, yeah, I'll give it a seven out of ten, just because of some inconsistencies in the episodes, but in terms of quality, yep. lah. Um, but really good episodes, really bad episodes altogether. Seven out of ten sounds like a fair, uh, great. Yes, absolutely. Uh, next up, let's talk about Turning Red, Ooh. Pixar's latest movie, which controversial opinion, <laughs> best film, of, best film of the year. Uh, what, uh, not of the year, of this month at least. Uh, what do you guys think? Uh. You are, I mean, that's a super controversial uh, line just because of the conversations the going around. La, turning yeah, red, sure. La. But in terms yeah. of, I mean, I have to agree with you. I mean, this is one of those movies that you will cry on. La, I don't think certain <laughs> points. And um, I saw, have you seen No, I have red? not got Turning Red, but it's on my to-watch list for sure. Okay. Awesome, awesome. Okay, uh, before we delve into the controversies of Turning Red or what makes it great, mm-hmm. um, this is directed by Domi Shi, mm-hmm. who won an Oscar for her first directorial effort. Do you remember the lovely Pixar short yes. Bao? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was, was Domi Shi, and uh, this is her first feature debut, uh, first feature film, and Turning Red is a coming-of-age fantasy comedy yeah. that makes the coming-of-age part literal. It is set in 2002 Toronto and follows the uber-confident Maylin Lee, mm-hmm. uh, voiced by breakout star Rosalie Chiang, mm-hmm. who is a Chinese-Canadian 13-year-old who does what she wants and says what she wants, except in the presence of her parents. <laughs> uh, May was raised in that classic first-generation Asian immigrant way to revere and respect her parents' wishes, while living a double life to hide her own burgeoning identity and urges and Western influences. Mm-hmm. May is happy with this double life. She loves her parents, loves the temple that they run. Uh, with their, she plays the, the red panda mascot for the temple. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also loves fangirling over dreamy boy band Four Town with her friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, the supportive Miriam, Vedit Ben Priya, who is voiced by Never Have I Ever Star, Matre yep. Ramakrishnan, by the way. Mm-hmm. And her other friend, the excitable Abby, the Korean girl. Um, it's one guilt is the one guilty pleasure she keeps secret from her overprotective mom, who is voiced by Sandra Oh. Yeah, um, but May's perfect if precarious life is about to get upended by 
the great beast with all faced. Mm-hmm. Um, not the red feather, but puberty. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, puberty manifests itself in a much wilder way than most. Mm-hmm. When May develops a crush on a teen drugstore clerk, her doodles of him are discovered by her mother, who humiliates her by storming to the drugstore and berating the very confused clerk in front of May's classmates to see. That night, May replaces the humiliation over and over in her mind, and something activates. She dreams of the red panda god at the altar of her parents' temples, mm-hmm. and its eyes glow. When she wakes up the next morning, she's horrified to discover that she has transformed into a giant red panda. As it turns out, this power is actually passed down in her family through the generations of daughters. Mm-hmm. It's a gift triggered by stress and anxiety that was useful on the battlefields of old, but rather convenient, uh, inconvenient uh, in modern day. Mm-hmm. May learns to control the emergence of her furball alter ego by keeping a lid on her emotions, drawing on a zen calm that she gets from being around her friends. But do you remember being 13? How feasible it is, how unfeasible it is for a 13-year-old to stop feeling extreme emotions? I mean, every emotion at that age is an extreme emotion. Mm -hmm. Um, Her mom deems it too dangerous for a child to coexist with the red panda and prepares for a temple ritual that will contain the beast on the night of the next red moon. I think this is such a charming coming-of-age movie that not only looks beautiful, but tackles some very deep, culturally-specific themes. Um, it's tangle of mother-daughter relationships, the urge for approval butting up against the hunger for emancipation. It's explored across the generations with anxiety fueled by the panda god history and May's mother's relationship with her own mother. Um, what do you think of Turning Red, Hadi? Um, I enjoyed it because, first of all, when you watch this movie, you need to know that it's not written for you. Sure. You know what I mean? And that doesn't mean you cannot enjoy it. Uh, sure. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the world building, you know, the, the whole I the whole metaphor of the red panda. I love the dynamics of the girls, you know, and how mm-hmm. different they are. Um, the whole relationship between uh, Sen- uh, the, the mom and, and, and Maylene brilliantly mm-hmm. done. Uh Everything was so deep, so well thought of, and like you could tell from uh, that it was based on a lot of realities of people, uh, uh, kids who lived through that era, la, the early 2000s, where, when they were going through puberty during that time. La. Yeah, I think part of the reason I responded to it so much is obviously I was never a girl who became a red panda. Of course. But, <laughs> but we went I through puberty boy, during that time. I was a boy who went through puberty at the age of. In 2002, during the age of boy bands and all Same. of that, you know, like I think I would have been a four townie back in the day. I think sure. if they were a real band. I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, I love my BSB man. Back then, BSB eight, town or whatever. Yeah, you know, whatever lah. Yeah, la. yeah, and yeah. you know the whole like that 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 hyper emotional state that you were in at the ages yeah. of like 13 to 16, you could remember, you know, how stupid it was. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that it's you know invalidated or it's not something that that should be talked about. But rather, I feel that this movie does that very well like, where they talk about those really insane like years like, of growing up because that, that mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense nothing makes sense during that period of time yep. you know everything was confusing there was new things that you're feeling that you never felt in your life before you know um, from from things like heartbreak you know to, to sadness to like deep depressions and all that it's insane so yeah so i think that move the, the turning rate does very well in addressing those uh issues of kids going through puberty especially young girls that are going through puberty which i think is something that not many films have talked about 
um, not to mention, uh, I think this is the first time in big screen, in a big screen at least, or at least in animated form, that Asian family dynamics have been portrayed so authentically and so so accurately too. Yeah, and not in a tropey way. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which, exactly. which is really refreshing. Uh, yeah. That the reality of the first, uh, I think, yeah, the first generation, you know, going through going going against the second generation yeah. who grew up in a West, in a Western influence, yeah, yeah. Or in a Western country, and the yeah. traumatic past of of you know of her mom as well, you know, being yeah. uh, pushed onto her daughter and all that stuff. I love that kind of of, of storytelling, you know, where where we, we we actually explore that that uh, traumatic past. Absolutely. I think the details of it is what makes it so great. Um, the details of the 2002 era, which we all recognize, you know, from the type of music they listen to, to the, to the clothes that they wore, to everything. You know, it's so well done. The Asian family dynamics, which we all recognize as well. Yeah. Um, I think the arguments between me and her mother are quite uh, relatable and universal, despite how specific it is. Mm-hmm. Um, suspense is built into the storytelling through the knowledge that each time the panda is unleashed, it gets stronger, making it less likely that the ritual will succeed. Yeah. Um, so May might be bound to the creature forever, but there's also May's internal conflict. Mm-hmm of learning to lose control now and then. Mm-hmm. I think just like any teenager, while struggling with a deep-rooted fear of disappointing her mother, you know, yeah. um, she is, she might need to let the beast rage once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and in keeping with the life or death importance given to most things in a 13-year-old's mm-hmm. world, the main stakes of the movie is that she might have to miss a four-town concert. Yeah. Um, and yes, it is not the end of the world or somebody's death or anything. But to that child... But you remember at that age when you thought like, oh shit, my mom doesn't allow me to go to concert. Exactly. It felt like the it felt like the highest of stakes, and I totally understand yeah. that. And Tony Red navigates the line between honoring family and exploring personal freedoms mm-hmm. expe- exceptionally well, and yeah. he deals it through the lens of dealing with mothers with high expectations mm-hmm. and the foibles of those mothers themselves. And Tony Red is also a loving portrait of teen friendship. Yeah. I think Mae's pals instant acceptance of her transformation yields some exhilarating bonding moments. Yeah. Visually, the style of the film influences, you know, I draw a lot from the influence of anime and Chinese watercolors yeah. in many sequences, yeah. uh, blending blending well with Pixar's in-house art style. Mm-hmm. Um, Tony Red is one of the most visually stimulating animated films to come out of Pixar for a long while, and an intriguing, intriguing glimpse of how the future of CG animation can be improved by blending with 2D animation. Um, in terms of story, it's kind of like a blend of the deep insight and painful millennial tween re- relatability of Pan 15 mm-hmm. um, alongside Agretsuko, which is another great show about sure. a red panda dealing with overwhelming <laughs> yes, emotions correct. through music. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah Meilin is boy bands, Agretsuko <laughs> is uh, death metal, but you know, same thing. Uh, yeah, Tenira <laughs> is so original and funny and tender and an affectionate reminder that adolescence is the time when life is not easily tamed and sometimes the animal inside inside us need to be released once in a while. That's why I love this film, and that's why I think it's Pixar's best film since Coco. Uh, what about you? I mean, okay, I, to address some of the controversy that has surrounded this film. Um, yeah, sure. One of the things that by by white men, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I yeah. Um, that think of all the boys, you know, the boys coming out of age narrative films. Um, every so coming of age narrative film since the dawn of time has right? been about boys <laughs> right exactly yeah. so many of those and just yeah. one that is just focused on a girl it suddenly becomes mm. like cringe taboo uh, oh you're, you're teaching your children to 
to uh, misbehave, to to go against par- uh, your parents and all that. Like missing the main point of this fucking movie. Um, anybody ever said that about Ferris Bueller's exactly, Day Off? No, right? Exactly. Because because he was a white boy. You know exactly. I'm, so that annoys yeah. the shit out of me. Like, yeah. like, come on, man! Like, don't have to to say. I mean, watch it properly, lah. You know. Are, are these the same people that thought like, oh, uh, Black Panther was not inclusive to white people? Most probably, lah. Most probably. Yeah. Like, the, I mean, there was uh, Cinema Blend. Uh, actually. Uh, published a thing where they accused the film of being racist and sexist. Yeah, against men and against white people. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. how can we enjoy this? We don't understand this experience. <laughs> then don't watch movies. Uh, or, or only watch movies like Fight Club or whatever people. you like. No, yeah, just yeah. watch movies about white people. Like, come on, man. Like, I mean, Coco was such a great coming of age film about a boy, right? A- I guarantee those people didn't like Coco also. Oh yeah, <laughs> why? Why are you che- teaching my children about these other cultures? I mean, Encanto, I guess, is another coming of age for a girl. Uh. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Did you see the backlash of Encanto? Also, yeah, the same, same thing also. It's the same people. I, I mean, I, I myself thought Encanto was a fine film. It That's wasn't right, it great, wasn't good, but I love the, I love the story behind it. The same way I love Turning Bo- Red. Yeah. Boy, I mean, Encanto like. It was an okay film with like a couple of bangers in its soundtrack, which yeah. really saved the film. Bruno, no, no. I mean, no. we don't talk about Bruno; it's the great. Best. But it's surface pressure is mad underrated, I and I think it's a better pressure. song. No, no, I, I think it's a better song I, than, I, than Bruno. I, but, agreed, agreed. Yeah, but we're getting sidetracked. Yeah, getting side. Turning red again, beautiful film. I really mm-hmm. recommend anyone, anyone to watch it. Like, just watch it. Appreciate the message that's trying to bring out. You know, and yeah. Appreciate something that that uh that's new and you know engaging lah. Yeah, yeah, storytelling is supposed to be an empathy machine. You're supposed to learn about other people exactly. and different types, different types of people. So, be open, lah, because um, red pandas are not uh, red panda monsters are not real, but Asian teen girls are a real demographic. <laughs> exactly, <boy. laughs> they exist in this world, and don't they deserve a film like this too? So sure, why, not, why not? You know, uh, it's an eight out of ten for me. Ooh. And do you agree? Do you agree that it is uh, the be- Pixar's best since Coco? Ah uh, no, I agree with you, hundred percent. Mm. What about Soul? A lot of people like to point out Soul. Um, Soul is good in terms of the Soul. Soul is great, but I think I prefer Turning Red. Yeah, slightly, I think slightly. I, I think Pixar's canon since Coco has been varied from mediocre, which is onward, to very good, which is Soul. Mm-hmm. And then you know there's some films in the middle over like Luca. Yeah, Luca's but, great. Uh, too. I like Luca. But Turning Red is, is better than all of them, yeah. which is why I I called it the best since Coco, and it's an eight out of ten. Sure. Uh, what uh, about you? Agreed. 8 out of 10. Agree with you. Best is Coco. Absolutely. Okay. Um, And that wraps it up for Hardy's... Uh, hey, I'm done. Hey. Hardy's commitment to this month's Hard, <laughs> uh, hard Hits Blood. Sorry. Uh, genre Equality. Yes. Um, He'll be back next month though to talk about the final season of Attack on Titan. Yeah. As well as... Severance. Boy, Severance, which at this point in time, I'm rating a 10 out of 10. So far. This might be so a spoiler far. for next week. I've not, I've not found a flaw in the show. <laughs> yeah. Um, because you have watched the whole thing, I have not. It's. I mean, I'm. I'm rewatching it now just to see whether whether ten out of ten is deserved. Okay. Because oh. like, like Station Eleven was a no brainer ten out of ten. Yeah. But I'm I'm wary of doing another ten out of ten so soon. Yeah. But at this moment, I'm like, boy, no flaws. I can't find a flaw in yeah. the show. This is so good. But yeah, so we we'll, we'll delve into that uh, next month. Thanks so much, Hardy. Thanks, no Hardy. Problem. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye, bye. Bye, guys.
And now we're going to delve into Quick Hits, which is the little segment that we do, well, that I do, <laughs> to talk about the films and TV shows that my co-host may not have had time to watch yet. Uh, first up is probably the highlight of Quick Hits this month. It is everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, two months before Doctor Strange 2 comes out, we have Michelle Yeoh in her version of The Multiverse of Madness. Mm -hmm. uh, this is helmed by directing duo The Daniels. Michelle Yeoh plays a Chinese immigrant matriarch named Evelyn Wang, who operates a laundromat with her husband Raymond in the United States. As the movie opens, her business is being audited by the IRS, which adds to the stress of her already dour life. Mm -hmm. As if her tax woes weren't enough, she's saddled with personal issues as well. Um, nothing she does is good enough for her father, Gong Gong, played by James Hong, which in turn informs the way Evelyn treats her exasperated adult daughter, Joy, played by Stephanie Sue. So this is, in a way, a bit of a thematic sequel to Turning Red. Um, and <laughs> it's, been, it's been a really great month for Hollywood movies exploring Chinese family dynamics. Yeah. Uh, but oh boy, this, this is way weirder than Turning Red. Like, you know, Turning to Red Panda is weird, but this is very, very, very weird. Um, you see... Evelyn's husband, Raymond, mm -hmm. has drawn up divorce papers, but instead of serving them, he's overcome by a quivering sensation on the way to the tax office, whereby a variant version of Raymond from a parallel universe occupies his body, possesses him. Mm -hmm. um, this more agile proxy performs an impromptu mental scan of Evelyn, instructing her how to access her alternate lives, unlocking all kinds of kooky Charlie Kaufman-esque possibility. Evelyn doesn't know what to think, but she follows Varian Raymond's directions, which allow her to verse jump. In a sense, her consciousness jumps into alternate universe uh, bodies. She tries it for the first time in the middle of the Wang's family meeting with Deirdre, who is the surly IRS agent, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, um, who looks hilariously frumpy. Like, this is one of Jamie Lee Curtis's best roles uh, in recent years. And for Evelyn, who only half understands English, this audit is already very uncomfortable. And the movie ensures that it's every bit as unpleasant for us uh, because it's made even bum bumpier by coinciding with her, with her virgin verse jump. You know, the first time she's, uh, she's jumping into another body. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're watching two scenes play out via split screen and blurry overlay. Oh, and it, it, it conveys the effect for Evelyn, how it must be to multitask multiple conversations in two places at once. Um, things only get more intimidating from there as the verse jumping Raymond explains the rules that an alternate Evelyn has discovered. Apparently, this old Evelyn is some sort of big brain physicist in another dimension, whereas, um, where she learns that this our Evelyn, the Evelyn we're following, is living the worst possible life in this one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Meaning that every other Evelyn in every other potential universe has made more successful love choices. One is a big Hong Kong action star, like the real Michelle Yeoh. Uh, one is a Peking opera singer, and one is a teppanyaki-style chef, for example. And the Daniels present as many of these realities as possible in short, zany um, micro-sketches. There's even a universe where everyone has hot dogs for fingers. It's very Rick and Morty, but if Rick and Morty were directed by the 1999 Wachowskis, so it's that kind of vibe. Um, soon, a demented alternate version of Deirdre, the RRS agent, comes after Evelyn like an evil tax-collecting Terminator, but she's not even the main villain. The main villain is Evelyn's daughter, um, the one uh, who mom has blamed for everything in her life being disappointing, you know, Shit, for her, okay. her, her poor daughter. <laughs> so it's come to the point where Joy has finally snapped uh -huh. and she reinvents herself as a new entity called Jobu Tupaki, who jumps from universe to universe, 
murdering every Evelyn that's ever existed. Um, all of this plays out like a delirious martial arts multiverse fever dream. It's maximalist and overstuffed with ideas and random asides like there's a universe that can't sustain life in which Evelyn and Joy appear as rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, in the middle, there is a meta joke fake ending where we sit through fate credits at the halfway mark because another universe's Evelyn has died. Um, there's a fanny pack flight sequence. There's even an irreverent bit in which security guards use butt plugs as multiverse portals. <laughs> it's, it's very like Rick and Morty madness. <laughs> Um, presented with rapid editing like a work of you know kind of slap happy genius as the filmmakers do what their title says mm-hmm. the filmmakers are trying to do everything everywhere all at once um, for the first hour and a half or so all this chaotic imagination feels fresh and magical yeah. you're just in disbelief that the movie this insane got, na- got made but after the second hour it sort of becomes a bit unrelenting and wearisome you start to get a bit of a headache from all the maximalist sensory overload. Um, it's a novel idea driven to the point of exhaustion at the end. But I think at the end of the day, it's I always prefer something that's like weird and fresh and new yeah. rather than something like The Batman. So this is 7.5 out of 10 for me. Nice. Okay. Uh, next up is a movie called After Yang. It is an A24 film. Uh, it's based on a short story called Saying Goodbye to Yang by Alexander Weinstein. Uh, it is set in a genre that might be best described as soft futurism mm-hmm. or quiet sci-fi. It's set in the near-distant future, and we follow a family doing what families do. They are just a normal family. They love, laugh, share experiences. We are introduced to a particular uh, to a particular multiracial family of protagonists via the opening sequence, which is a which is a vibrant virtual video game dance tournament, like a dance dance revolution dance tournament, where families across the world have to dance in sequence, and the family that does is the best wins. Yeah. Um, this DDR intro is outstanding and it rivals Oscar <laughs> Isaac's disco boogie scene from Ex Machina. Wow. Um, the, the real major difference in technology in this world is the advance, the advent of techno sapiens, which are humanistic, realistic AI androids that live among us. Mm-hmm. In the case of this particular family, Yang is acquired to be the older brother and companion of Mika, who is an Asian girl who was adopted by her white father, Jack, played by Colin Farrell and her black mother, Kira, played by Judy Turner-Smith. So the sentient humanoid looks Chinese and is programmed with Chinese cultural knowledge so that he can teach Micah about her Chinese heritage, language, and roots, mm-hmm. uh, something that her parents can't, can't give her because she's adopted. Life is normal for the family until one day Yang begins to malfunction and then switches to a dormant state. So they are crestfallen about their beloved Yang and little Micah can't concentrate on school and Jack, who is a thoughtful, introspective boutique tea shop owner, yeah. begins a journey of getting Yang fixed. But this task is full of unexpected and frustrating challenges that test this normal, normally untroubled and caring, uh, his, this normally untroubled and caring family and, and uh, the father's resolve. The, fum- the, the film is humanist in its extreme. I think unlike other sci-fi, it asks no large sociological uh, or abstract questions. Rather, it explores very personal ideas of identity, what it means to love, grief, and to be a family. It is directed by a South Korean auteur named Kogonada. And After Yang is a really beautiful and contemplative mood piece or tone poem that prompts you to look inward as well. Kogonada has the most superb eye for composition, Mm. and he can delicately break your heart with luminous and exquisitely crafted frames. This is a film about that precise moment in time when a child starts to 
kind of gently, curiously inquire about what death is, mm -hmm. what happens when we die, and then begins to sadly grapple with the concept that all things must die, including the things that we love the most. It's a lot to grasp, and after Yang occupies a similar space, one of, of innocence and tenderness and heartache and that reflective contemplation of life, death, and existence from a childlike perspective, but one that quickly matures into something much more profound. All of this is bolstered by many Asian sensibilities of stillness and minimalism. I think After Yang is marked by tranquility and zen-like qualities that are entrancing and absolutely captivating. Some people might find it slow, but I find the, the zen-like framing and pacing very mesmerizing. Colin Farrell in this regard is outstanding, compelling, uh, and he forces you to lean in and listen attentively to his quiet movements and soft-spoken words. It is one of his best and most mesmerizing performances. Awesome. Um, it is the exact opposite of what he does with the penguin. <laughs> um, as the after Yang riddle and mystery unfolds, specifically Jack hacking into and learning more about Yang's past life and experiences mm -hmm. that he's taken in, you know, um, this is not Yang's first family. You know, he's been with many other families. So he learns of Yang's uh, memories, you know, ones of joy and sadness and anguish and more. Kagunada's film crescendos into a lovely, towering work of empathy and compassion. This is kind of a wistful contemplation of how all things must end, and it's a deeply moving one. It's like a quieter version of Philip K. Dick's um, Do Androids uh, Dream of Electric Sheep? Uh, or, or Steven Spielberg's AI, which is based on that, uh, on that book. And... And, and what wonders have they experienced? You know, and this really delves into, into that. After Yang, it's a terrific existential take on those big human condition questions about robots, AI, the capacity for humanity, and what it all reflects and says about our own understanding of life. It's poignant and poetic. After Yang, it's a soulful and heartbreaking meditation on impermanence, and it's full of poignant wonder and of human grace. It's an 8 out of 10 for me. Very, very highly wow. rated. So go catch After Yang if you can. It's, a, it's an 8 for film. Uh, I'm going to quickly run through the rest. Next up is DMZ. DMZ is based on the acclaimed comic book of the same name by Brian Wood and Ricardo Bocinelli. Mm -hmm. It is set in an alternate future in a timeline where the US has fractured due to a second American Civil War. Manhattan has become a demilitarized zone between the United States of America and the splinter Free States of America. We follow a doctor named Alma, played by Rosario Dawson, mm -hmm. who breaks into the DMZ to look for her missing son. Alma is soon caught up in an ongoing battle for the streets between two rival gangs, each gang led from a man from her former life. One is Paco Delgado, paid by Benjamin Brett, who is her ex-husband, who is a gangster. Even before the war began, he is the leader of the Latin kings. He controls half of the city. On the flip side, we have Wilson, played by Hoon Lee, who runs Chinatown and his own gang. Wilson and Z, uh, once, uh, Wilson and Alma, played by Rosario Dawson, once worked together in a medical clinic before the war, so they remember each other fondly. Um, she, she seeks out both men, hoping that one of them knows something about her son, and that's when she's forced to deal with this new reality. Um, and despite a premise that promises to be topical and relevant with a capital R, you know, given the urgent uh, developments in American politics or the divisive American politics in recent years, you know, yeah. the, the culture war in recent years, January 6th and all of that, DMC is strangely apolitical. It seems to be playing safe, hmm. kind of making general statements about power to the people or democracy or community without really exploring the nitty-gritty of anything. Um, DMZ is basically a one-hour pilot stretched to four very bloated, uneven hours. It's full of big ideas about civics and what it means to be a citizen. 
but it never really delves deep into it and the characters aren't given room to grow. So it's a 5 out of 10. It's a great pilot, but not a great four episode. So yeah, um, mm. a, a, a bit sad about how this ended up. Uh, next up is Human Resources, which is a spin-off of the popular animated comedy Big Mouth. And yep. the series focuses on the work environment of the hormone monsters, <laughs> uh, which is an interesting concept. Yeah. It follows a new character played by Edie Bryant, who is a love bug uh, assigned her first client. But it also guest stars all the hormone monsters that we come to know from the parent series. Um, this is like a cross between Big Mouth, The Office, and perhaps a more unrestrained, vulgar version of Inside Out. Interesting. And um, human resources examines where uh, the most intense human experiences come from. Um, the first season of the spin-off series explores love, horniness, humiliation, anxiety in humans, and also dives into the ways that emotions themselves develop. Hormone monsters, uh, depression kitties, shame wizards, love bugs, and more of these type of monsters navigate a shared workplace and the human world uh, where they take turns making each other's jobs harder. Um, love bugs can't do their work without finding hormone monsters screwing each other on desks. Um, anxiety mosquitoes get on each other's nerves. Uh, logic rocks don't appreciate grief monsters egging humans to do uh, to sob spontaneously or go into depression. Mm-hmm. Um, the creatures' interactions, even without the human subjects on the main show, also explore the complicated inner workings of humanity. Human resources thrives in the moments when we are allowed to see the creatures dealing with the same messy conflicts that humans often do and grapple with how their own interpersonal struggles affect their ability to do their jobs. Human resources demonstrates how varying moods and emotions are affected by one another. Mm -hmm. Um, Hormones and love and anxiety are not mutually exclusive. They're interrelated, right? You know? And, and that interrelation is what makes the world great. Yeah. This, the world of human resources is great. But, like its parent show, mm-hmm. human resources often struggles in transitioning between heartfelt storylines and earnest moments with kind of the more vulgar dick jokes, you know? Yeah. Um, the plot lines about the difficulties of handling emotions and aligning our actions with our values often ricochet too quickly uh, to raunchy jokes about penises. You know, instead of openness, characters lean into risky behavior, which kind of flattens arcs that could have been made more bold and more satisfying. Mm-hmm. I think kind of like what I said about Big Mouth Season 5, yeah. this new show attempts to ground itself in the creature's inner world, but when true opportunities for vulnerability pop up, you know, that possibility for deeper understanding of why they are who they are is too frequently substituted for a sex scene or a pun about cum. Um, as such, it can feel like there isn't enough time for the characters to grow into something beyond tropes. Mm-hmm. So it's a 6 out of 10 for me as well. I see. Um, yeah, finally, I'm going to delve into The Adam Project, <laughs> which is coming to you from Ryan Reynolds and the team behind Free Guy. This is Netflix's new sci-fi action film. Mm-hmm. Um, it follows a time-traveling pilot who teams up with his younger self and his late father to come to terms with the past while saving the future. This one strives to be reminiscent of the disposable blockbusters of the mid-90s, you know, from Emblem Entertainment. Uh, and it does succeed, I think, in being fast food sci-fi. Yeah. Kind of, you know, art- artificially flavoured and quickly devoured. This is the kind of, like, post-Goonies, family-oriented schmaltz that is inoffensive but also unoriginal in every way. And ultimately, it ends up being derivative drivel that is neither bad nor good. It's just bland. Uh, you also caught the Adam Project. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, like, it's what you would expect I think 
you know, like just like looking at the the trailer of it itself, it's pretty much what you expect it to be. Some of the yep. uh the CGI is pretty good, I have to say. Some of the fight scenes mm. are pretty impressive. Um, but that's kind of like the whole deal with the Adam Project, right? Like headed by Ryan Reynolds, and it's not, you know, it it just feels like they needed to churn out one more, and and that's what we got. Honestly, also because it's time travel, right? Like a lot of the hand waving for time travel things. It's just mm. so lazy, so 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 lazy. But sure, you know, yep. uh, it you know, you want something mindless on Netflix for whatever reason, then yeah, go ahead. It, there are a lot of mindless things on Netflix, and a lot of them are better than Adam. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, next up, though, we'll delve into ISIS Enemy Corner, yes. which for the first time or in a long time includes a film. Yeah. Um. Let's go into Enemy Corner now. What do you have for us, Isaac? Okay, so I'm going to start off with probably the biggest uh, thing for this particular month. So we got yeah. the new Jujutsu Kaisen movie, Jujutsu Kaisen Zero, Zero right? uh, which yep. is a prequel to the series, uh, the first season of the series that is currently out already. Uh, mm. Within it, we follow Yuta Okotsu, who is a new character to the series, uh, or rather, he's someone that we haven't seen appear yet um, mm. in, in the mainline series itself. You know, uh, he is a haunted child uh, and has been haunted ever since his close childhood friend, whom he made a pact with, died horrifically in a traffic accident, and her specter is essentially stuck with him, right? Um, throughout his growing years, this specter called Rika uh, has mm. been protecting him, I guess, from the various bullies who would pick on him throughout that, uh, which led to an incident where many of those bullies basically died horrifically and bloodily, right? Mm. Uh, this uh, gets him picked up by our favourite all-time, Gojo Satoru, uh, who comes to pick him up and instead, once again, of executing him, uh, decides that, you know what, let's turn him into a sorcerer uh, and see how he does in school, uh, if that yeah. sounds familiar enough to that. Um, yeah. With this jump back in time, um, y- uh, Yuta is once again, or not once again, Yuta is uh, introduced to the previous class of uh, the Tokyo branch of Jujutsu High. So we do see some mm-hmm. returning characters um, as far as returning in a prequel goes, we see younger versions of Panda, uh, Inumaki, and Maki, who are his co-stars, essentially, or in supporting roles for this particular story. Uh, mm. it, it turns out that um, Geto, who is also a villain that's featured uh, in the mainline series itself, has had his eye on Rika in particular. Uh, and that sets up the main kind of conflict uh, and the main kind of battles for what we are having in Jujutsu Kaisen Zero. So yep. I'm not going to go past that because I do think there are some major spoilers. Um, but that's mm-hmm. the essential premise of uh, what's going on. It gives us a lot of lore and fills up a lot of the backstory that I don't think we get in the mainline series itself. Uh, a much better idea of how exactly the world of sorcerers work um, within mm-hmm. Jujutsu Kaisen. Uh, and yep. um, maybe some of the kind of like red tape and bureaucracy that goes on behind kind of the running of the schools and expands a little on some of the character backstories of the the minor characters in the series. Uh, mm. Jujutsu Kaisen is a fantastic example of what happens when you give masters of animation like Mappa movie money. Oh, yeah, Mappa. Oh, my, okay. oh yeah. my God. Um, the fight scenes here are full-blown and epic 
uh, and even like the minor fight scenes that lead up to the main one, right? Like feel really, really like impactful and well fleshed out. Um, however, I have to say that Jujutsu Kaisen Zero suffers from the same problem that we had with uh, Mugen Train for Demon Slayer, in which mm. it feels as though this movie would have been better served as a short limited series instead of a full-blown movie. While the runtime is fairly long for an anime movie, uh, just over an hour and 45 minutes, it does feel that a lot of the pacing, um, the pacing feels rushed in a way that is uncomfortable. A lot of the emotional moments, especially for the first two acts, feel unearned and extremely shoehorned into place, right? Uh, mm. You get in, you get, to like tears and into like emotional states that don't feel fully fleshed out or developed just in all uh, those moments feel more like exposition than they do like genuine like high points uh within the film itself um yep. that being said the climax is exciting and exhilarating uh the <laughs> fight is oh man i i think for this year might be one of the fights of the year in my opinion Sweet. um okay and uh, yeah uh it is uh it still struggles in the end with kind of the power leveling problem that we were talking about in mm. in uh the entertainment district itself so yeah. uh while this does have its issues if you are a fan of the main series of Jujutsu Kaisen as a whole i think this does bring more to the table than it does not uh and mm. it is the the flaws of it are forgivable for the final product that it does uh, bring to you. Also, it um, mm. in the end it does set up some interesting things for season two, which is coming very soon. So, uh, all in all, I'm going to give uh, Jujutsu Kaisen the movie a seven out of ten. Uh, really, really okay. enjoyed it. Uh, I would have made it higher if they had done the pacing a little better. And again, yeah. I really wish this was like a five or six part. Um, kind of like mm. series where they had more time to delve into the characters and all that because it really does feel very rushed. Gotcha. Okay. Fair. Yes. So uh, I'm going to dive into uh, winter, the winter season that's, well, kind of late. So uh, a lot of the series are going to be having their last couple of episodes while we're there. Uh, first of all, mm. I'm going to very quickly go through the stuff that either we've already talked about or are returning series from um, this uh, for this particular one. Uh, obviously, there yep. is the biggest of the lot, which is Attack on Titan, the final season, part two, uh, of which if mm. you are uh, kind of already caught up and you would like to see, Hitze has a wonderful uh, article already uh, on that, which we've posted up on our socials as well. Uh, but yep. we will be discussing that in depth together with Hardy uh, mm. next month for genre equality. Uh, yes. There's also Demon Slayer, the Entertainment District, which we all we already did a, a deep dive into about what we liked and our complaints were on the last episode mm. 51 of genre equality as well. Um, mm -hmm. And just kind of a small shout out to uh, season two of how the realist hero rebuilt the kingdom. I think I mentioned it in one of my notable mentions a couple of episodes back. Uh, it continues to be kind of a very light uh isekai things that borders on being kind of educational with the, the economy um war strategy politics and all of that um mm. the the character work is poor the world building is not <laughs> great but the fact that it does offer like really good insight to a way a kingdom should be run from multiple facets much in the same yeah. way we've talked about how we like twice and wolf and so on and so forth 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've been enjoying the season as well. Um, as for new anime, this yeah. season is a bit of a lean pickings as far as we've seen over the last one year or so. Uh, okay. And kind of like wrapping up the winter season here, uh, we are completely dominated by slice-of-life anime. Right, mm-hmm. So I usually have three big recommendations, uh, but this time around, I only have two. One of which which really caught me by surprise. I'm going to dive in first uh, to something that I've been raving about for a while uh, since mm-hmm. it kind of came out because I didn't expect for it to be as good as it is. And that is My Dress Up Darling. Um, mm-hmm. So in My Dress Up Darling, we follow high school student uh, Gojo Wakana who is uh, who comes from a family of Japanese doll makers, Japanese Hina dolls. Um, and mm. his entire life, up to that point, has been in the pursuit of becoming a, a kind of like a doll maker master, but much like his grandfather, right? Um, sure. Uh, at the point in time when we meet him, he has, uh, you know, found absolute bliss in this pursuit of of his craft in the sewing clothes for his dolls and his practicing of drawing the doll faces. But he goes to great lengths to kind of hide this. Um, hobby, I guess, uh, because he mm. believes that he will be ridiculed uh, as a result if it were to come out. Uh, lo and behold, Entin, uh, enter <laughs> uh, Kitagawa Marin, who is the absolute opposite of this very shy, reserved, um, unknown high school boy in school. She is his extremely popular classmate, uh, who is really pretty, whose confidence you know, kind of like spills out all over the place uh, in addition to other things. Uh, And uh, the two of them discover, or rather Marin discovers that uh, Gojo has the amazing ability to be great with a sewing machine, right? And it turns out that she is a huge otaku who loves, or rather loves the idea of going into cosplay. Therein begins a very strange kind of friendship where he, he uh, she basically um, <laughs> recruits him to start making uh, cosplay uh, costumes for her. Uh, and that's kind of the premise of the story. What it turns out to be, right, uh, is a very heartwarming and cute story of teen romance and teen horniness and this very strange reconciliation between two sides of Japanese culture, one extremely traditional and the other extremely pop, uh, and how um, maybe the obsession or the obsessiveness of those cultures as an otaku and, and like a traditional doll maker aren't necessarily as different as it would seem. Uh, mm. And yeah, I've been really, really enjoying this. There are a lot of extremely uh, great laugh out loud moments uh, at Gojo's expense as kind of like a reserved shy teen boy. I will have to say as a kind of warning and or advertisement uh, that this is a very horny, very fan service uh, series. Uh, if anything, mm. like the, the meme going around right now is that they spent more resources on several key boob physics animations uh, mm. than like some entire series have probably spent in their entire budget uh, which is kind of funny uh, yeah. but none of it feels like uh, particularly 
lewd or out of place simply because the protagonists that we are talking about are like full-blooded teenagers at a time in their life where they're trying to understand both themselves and, and their identity and their sexuality as well. Uh, mm. And that plays out in a much more palatable way, I think, than a lot of fancy stuff does. Right, I don't yep. usually push fan service stuff here on genre equality, but I think within the world of my dress up darling, uh, it it feels like it it is at the right tone end and then kind of like the right place. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, so that's like ten episodes in. I think we've got two more episodes to go, but I really really enjoyed this. It reminds me a lot of um another anime that I talked about about uh. I think it's called Down the Runway where it's uh, about a model that's too short to be a runway model and an aspiring designer who happened to meet each other online and that develops their relationship. This has a lot of a similar vibe to it but with tons more kind of like high school romance and drama folded into Mm. it as well. Okay, okay. Yeah, so that is My Dress Up Darling. The next on my list, which is the one that caught me more by surprise that recently came out on Netflix if you're in Singapore is called Mm. Kotaru Lives Alone. And the okay. uh, premise of this is uh, fairly simple uh, with extremely surprising results. Uh, basically, we follow a boy called uh, Sato Kotaru who moves into one of those like two-story apartment buildings with really small like seven tatami mat rooms uh, mm. uh, on his own. Uh, and he's four years old. He moves right next to uh, Karino Shin who is a mangaka I guess, like, he's mangaka adjacent given that he's constantly uh, out of employment uh, during that time, right? Uh, He also moves in together with a lady who is a hostess at a host club at night. Mm. And, uh, well, what I get would be a Yakuza adjacent in one of the other things. Uh, What starts out as a very kind of, like, cute, funny exploration of like found family and the mystery of why a four-year-old boy is staying on his own becomes a very meaningful and quietly heartbreaking story about child uh, trauma, abandonment and abuse uh, that is worked into it in such a subtle way that it both brings a smile to your face in its lighter moments but is absolutely tear-jerking at the same time. Uh, Mm. Kotaro lives alone was more devastating than some of the straight out like dramas, uh, anime dramas that I have seen in recent times, uh, just because of the way that it is both addressed in terms of the 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 fact of the matter that it is a part of society that there are these kids who exist who you know um you know don't have enough to eat or you know because of the, their living circumstances or or what their parents are up to simply have to find a way to survive in a world that's dominated by adults that may not may or may not care. Um, yep. In that sense, Kotaro is lucky because of his found family and the, mm. all the kind of hijinks that comes about for wanting to care for a four-year-old who lives on his own uh, but is at the same time extremely independent but naive uh, provides a, fa- a lot of fantastic, hilarious, comedic moments while also serving you some of the most dire... <laughs> Um, dire kind of like thematic explorations about what it is to be alone as a child. Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. It is. It is fantastic. Uh, the animation style may not be for everyone. Uh, but just the just how bold it is, I think, to kind of want to marry these two things together in a very in a way that feels very well put 
together and smooth is is it has been a joy to kind of watch this uh, and a very very emotional journey as well. Mm. So that wraps up my two main recommendations here. I would like to give a shout out also to two notable mentions. One of which okay. uh, is for our listeners out there who like boys love stuff, uh, and mm. it is called Sasaki to Miyano or Sasaki and Miyano. Uh, think of this as the Boys Love version of Horimiya, which I gave an extremely glowing review to a couple of seasons ago. Uh, and essentially, it's about this high school boy, Miyano, who meets Sasaki, a much older upperclassman who is also a delinquent, and saves uh, Miyano and his friend from a bunch of bullies. Now, Miyano harbors another embarrassing secret. As you can see, thematically, that's what we're going for this season. Yeah. Uh, he is a fudanshi, which basically means he's a boy who likes boys love uh, manga. Yeah. Uh, and um, he, unfortunately, through, through some slip of tongue, some students find out. Uh, um, and he eventually, due to Sasaki's kind of persistent presence in his life, despite his dislike of that, reveals the truth to Sasaki. Uh, intrigues Sasaki asked to borrow a book to read and kind of dives into the world of boys' love as well. Uh, Sasaki finds himself enjoying it, much to Miyano's surprise. Uh, but that starts a shift in the, uh, the very already strange dynamic that they have. Uh, Sasaki and Miyano is an extremely cute uh, very uh, boys' love take on the romance genre of, of uh, high school slice of life. Uh, and really does feel in a lot of ways like Horimiya, um, but with some very specifically different, gender-specifically different things. Uh, for those of you who are into that, um, yeah, I would highly recommend it uh, as well. Nice. Uh, it's cute. It's cute. There are a lot of like really kind of cute, hair-standing, sweet, uh, heartfelt moments peppered throughout. And the voice acting okay. as, as well as the very solid score is, is something to catch as well. Nice, okay, okay. Last but not least, and rounding up my recommendations is yet another slice of life uh, slash sports anime, I guess, called Slow Loop, uh, mm -hmm. where we follow uh, a young girl called Kiyori Yamakawa, um, whose eccentric father has always bonds with her in the single uh, activity of fly fishing, right? Um, okay. Even after his death, Hiori still spends time uh, savoring the joy in this particular activity that goes on. Three years later, when Hiori's mother decides to remarry and arranges a dinner with her fiancé and his uh, her fiancé's family, mm. Hiori goes out um, you know, to find some quiet time for herself and goes to a nearby bridge where she always goes to to do some fly fishing. Lo and behold, she meets another very outgoing, very extroverted girl uh, at the bridge itself who takes an interest into fly fishing, uh, what, what Hiyori is doing. Uh, but their meeting is more than a coincidence because it turns out that Koharu, this new girl that enters Hiyori's life, is actually uh, Hiyori's future step-sibling. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, slow loop. Um, on the surface, I think, especially in the first couple of episodes, comes across as a very interesting, kind of like informative uh, uh, little cute anime about cute girls doing cute things and, and centered around fly fishing. Uh, but in the later episodes, there are some very, very deep dives into each individual character's problems with their family. It is, after all, a family drama that is built around. And I think mm -hmm. that it does do the thematic 
exploration of family drama and family trauma and of missing parents or dead parents uh, mm-hmm. a lot of justice while still keeping it fairly like light-hearted um, I've been enjoying this just because like I think it's been a while since um, you know I've had I've seen a cute girls doing cute things genre thing uh, have a bit more meat on it than usual and also like ah. just learning a ton of stuff about fly fishing that I never knew before um, okay. as with anything that we would consider sports anime I would say that the animation here is actually pretty solid especially the fishing scenes like it mm-hmm. feels eye-catching uh, and reminds me a lot of oh man what was that early 80s anime about fishing as well uh, I've never seen anything like that yeah yeah I'll, I'll I'll bring it up as and when I remember what it is but like fairly solid all around something that I've really kind of like kept up to date with and enjoyed um, throughout the season as well and that wraps up this uh, this episode of Anime Corner I guess uh, nice okay okay that being said um, I think we are looking forward to a lot of amazing stuff upcoming in spring uh, mm. so We'll see how that goes. I believe that uh, a ton of stuff is coming in. So pay attention for the next time that we, we do another roundup. Yeah, probably mid-year. Then we, we can round up all the hopefully better um, spring season yep. uh, with a lot of hype titles coming in. Oh, soon. yeah. Uh, yeah, quick shout out. I recently uh, also said this on uh, the last episode of Behold. But if you didn't listen to that, I caught up on a show called Kids on the Slope. Yeah. Recently. I really, really liked it. It is a jazz anime, which is... I think rare even for music enemies. Yes. But yeah, I really thought it was fine. Yes. Yeah, it was fun and dope. So yeah. I've because of your recommendation, The Last Behold, I have started watching that. And then I'm a couple of episodes in, I think two episodes in, but I'm really, really enjoying it. Uh Kids on the Slope was something that completely was not on my radar at the point in time when it came out. But damn, dude, what mm. a discovery, man. It's very, very solid stuff. Absolutely, yeah. I was so surprised by Kids on the Slope. I discovered it when I was listening to jazz on YouTube, you know, on those autoplays things. Yeah. And then uh, one of the songs from the Kids on the Slope OST came on. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, um, Kids on the Slope blew my mind. I started <laughs> I, I started listening to it and then I started watching it and it became this really cool um, sort of slice of life coming of age story as told through the lens of jazz. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, it is it, it is a probably quite unique, la, but a slice of life element is quite... Um, normal like yeah. you, you've seen it you, you've seen it done before the, but it's the jazz element that made it special mm-hmm. um, it's like it follows this introverted high schooler which is standard Karu Nishimi right yeah. he's this classically trained pianist and one day he accidentally befriends his school's uh, resident delinquent Sentaro Kawabuchi mm-hmm. who happens to be a jazz drummer and through this unexpected bond with Kentaro, like Karu begins to broaden his rigid worldview. He delves into like this messier, more chaotic, more improvisational world of jazz. And their jam sessions as their instruments communicate and argue with each other, kind of like expressing what they can't articulate, provide some of the show's most transcendent moments. Mm-hmm. And like I said, the coming of eight, like other coming of age stories, like Kids on the Slope also aims to explore the transition from teen to adulthood through ordinary struggles that seem insurmountable to the teen mind. Yeah. Um, Kaoru needs to be being such a set needs to stop being such a set sack. Um, <laughs> Sentaro needs to learn responsibility. Yeah. But all the conflict and struggle and conversation is represented through jazz, which is the perfect art form to embody the chaotic, interactive, multidimensional, syncopated messiness that is life. Yeah. And the two boys are also 
part of a trio of friends, which includes Ritsuko, which is Sentaro's childhood buddy and Karu's love interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately for Karu, Ritsuko has been in love with Sentaro since she was a child, which makes their friendship more complex. Mm-hmm. Um, many slice-of-life enemies have intertwining crushes that lead to love triangles yeah. or love quadrangles or love hexagons. <laughs> and this one does too. But it, but few feel as realistic as Kids on the Slope. Um, the romances and friendships and messy growing pains are less soap operatic than most teen dramas uh-huh. and it feels very like well-observed and realistic. And as a huge bonus, again, you get a great jazz soundtrack to to accompany you yeah. with every lushly drawn moment of teen agony. So yeah, I highly recommend Kids in the Stove as well. Excellent stuff. Nice. I did not expect to put that in uh, Anime Corner, but hey, here it is. Hey, I uh, mean, it's anime, so let's go with it. And I'm really, really true, enjoying it. Yeah. It's a very old anime from 2012. Yeah. Uh, so you might have trouble finding it. Um, it's not on Netflix or anything, but you know where to look like if you're, <laughs> uh, if you're an anime guy. Yeah. Um, finally, I'm going to delve into the pull list, which is where I recommend a book or a comic that my co-hosts haven't read and probably a little under the radar this month. It's a book called 13 Stories, mm-hmm. which I super enjoyed. Um, it was a gift from a friend uh, in Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, had not heard of this book at all. And let me tell you, buying a book for me is a massive, massive oh, risk. Oh, yeah. Because, yep. because, like, don't try. But <laughs> this this friend gave me four books. Um, wanted to bet, wanted to hedge her bets like, to see, you know. Um, hopefully, at least one book I haven't read. And that one book was 13 Stories. Okay. Uh, I never heard of it. Didn't know anything about it. And this was the best book that I've read in recent times. Perhaps not a great work of literature, but okay. a great page-turning, fun kind of book, you know? Yeah. Like, one of those that you read on a train journey or, like, in a plane or something like that. Uh-huh. Uh, 13 Stories is the debut novel of Jonathan Sims, who was the head writer and voice actor for a horror podcast called The Magnus Archives. Mm-hmm. Um, the Magnus Archives is very, very, very popular in the horror podcast world, and it's not much of a surprise that 13 Stories works in a similar vein of horror. Yeah. Um, the, Magnus Ar- the Magnus Archives um, excelled at taking short story ideas uh, at least short horror story ideas and linking them together into a coherent overarching plot uh, without giving up on making almost every episode standalone. So everything, every episode can be listened to as, as a standalone story, but they all tie in at the end of each season. Um, think of it like what if. It's like that. Okay. And 13 stories threads a similar needle. Each chapter is told from the point of view of one person who either lives or works in Banyan Court. Mm-hmm. Bunyan Court is an apartment building owned by a billionaire called Tobias Fell. What is Bunyan Court? Bunyan Court is a 13-story high-rise apartment block and a residential development in London. Bunyan Court is divided into two opposite sides. The front of their building features large, lavish, and luxury, pristine modern apartments for the high class, privileged and the wealthy, where their every whim is catered, they have concierge, you know, stuff like that. Meanwhile, at the back of the building, it features basic and functional tenement-style apartments that are dilapidated and run down. They are for the deprived and the low-income and the lower class. It is designed this way uh, because legally in London, this is a real thing, every residential building in central London must apportion some space for affordable housing. So it's it's a weird building where like half of it is super rich and half of it is super poor. And as I mentioned, each of the first 12 stories focuses on an individual person and their supernatural experiences within Badin Court, which is a super haunted building. Mm-hmm. Um, in each story, um, a, each story kind of ends with a person receiving an invitation to a dinner party yeah. being, being, being hosted by Tobias Fell. 
the the reclusive billionaire who who designed the binding who designed binding court and lives in the penthouse. So the thirteenth and final story brings all of the assembled players from the previous twelve stories as the invitees arrive for a fateful dinner party that that uh that sees Tobias Fell murdered in bloody fashion. Mm-hmm. Now, why did I tell you that he was murdered? Isn't that a big spoiler? No, it's revealed in the very first page of the book, and then it works backwards. Um, it's it's right there in the intro. The mystery is that none of these guests seem to remember what happened. So we're recounting the events leading up to the dinner party. Yeah. So we as the reader can find out what happened. So all of the individual chapters are each excellent ghost stories in their own right, featuring different types of hauntings and very different protagonists. Um, some of the haunted are rich people living in the front, uh, such as a millionaire app developer whose technology turns on him. Mm-hmm. There's an avant-garde art dealer who becomes obsessed with a haunted new painting he acquires. Um, some stories are about the poor, struggling people living in the back, such as a night shift worker and a single mother barely able to make ends meet. Meanwhile, some stories also focus on the workers at Banyan Court, such as a plumber and a concierge. Each character has their own struggle, and I really appreciated how diverse these protagonists are in terms of race, class, gender, and sexuality. Mm-hmm. And through the stories, we learn the many, many, many reasons why Banyan Court is so haunted. Because it all goes back to the crimes of Tobias Fell uh, and, and what his family has committed en route to attaining their wealth. Oh, okay. they, have, they have oil companies poisoning rivers. They have agricultural companies sending mercenaries to dis- displace indigenous people from their lands. They have pharmaceutical companies dealing in drugs that have killed people. His clothing companies exploit slave labor. His media companies expose fake news and cover-ups. Oh, you know, he has goons murdering whistleblowers. His real estate companies contributed to the housing crisis. Um, he has mining and construction companies that cut costs on safety equipment, leading to many worker deaths. And so much more. So it's obvious that the spirits of his many victims are angry and are coalescing at this place. So the book tackles the theme of wealthy people exploiting the poor by bringing up issues that are timely and socially relevant. There's a sinister vibe throughout the story where Tobias Fell lingers in the background of each character without making an appearance. I was excited to see what would happen to lead to his death, especially when the characters start receiving the dinner invitations. But what I really loved about the book was that you know, even if you take out the sociological underpinnings or the political underpinnings or whatever, uh-huh. the book is just a genuinely creepy story. 13 Stories is saturated in this really eerie atmosphere with a creeping sense of unease and a sinister undertone. And each haunted house story or each ghost story is so different. Like, so, so very different that it's always a breath of fresh air when you jump into a new story. Yeah. A lot of people like to think that ghost stories are a dime a dozen, one and the same. No, they're not. There are 12 very different ghost stories here. Um, some are insidious and offer a grounded and measured approach. Mm-hmm. Others are cerebral and use the adage of less is more, uh, you know, leaving your imagination to run wild. While others are far more visceral with sections that include some full-blown grotesque and macabre vivid imagery. Yeah. With the differences in both the stories and the hauntings, 13 Stories offers a varied collection of immersive and unsettling tales that had me hooked. Uh, give this one a shot if uh, if you're looking for a nice, quick, breezy, e- easy read with like, you know, short chapters and you know, um, a lot of paragraphs between uh, <laughs> between everything. It's, it's a very easy read. La. So yeah, give this one a shot. 13 stories as well. Cool. Uh, that wraps it up for this month's uh, genre equality. I almost said hard hit skill. <laughs> uh, for this month's genre equality, we will be back next month to talk about the final season of Attack on Titan, yeah. uh, Severance, Russian Doll, which returns after 3.5 years. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. 
um, Morbius is finally coming to the cinemas. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. Like this, <laughs> this, this movie. Like when I sit down and when the trailers finish and when Morbius starts, that's when I believe that I'm watching Morbius because yep. Morbius has been pushed back so many times that I just I don't believe. Like there is a question mark next to this on the rundown. I'm like I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> We'll see. Um, we'll see. Yeah, are we talking about other films like Memoria, um, Fantastic Beast Three? I think Sonic the Hedgehog Two. I saw talk about Ultraman and the new enemy about a Roman bathhouse designer yeah. who gets transported to modern Japan. <laughs> um, plus, I'll be reviewing a very old book that won a Pulitzer Prize that I've shamefully never read until now. It's called Never Let Me Go. Um, I've seen the movie, mm-hmm. uh, which is why I didn't read the book because I thought you know I had the experience, but. Well, I mean, as with most things, uh, um, a Pulitzer Prize-winning book is a lot better than a movie with 60% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, again, no no fault of Andrew Garfield. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, he's been in several bad movies, but it's never his fault. Um, the movie had Andrew Garfield and Kerry Mulligan and Kira Knightley, so they're good actors. It just wasn't very well done. But yeah, uh, that's upcoming for John and Quality 53. What are you most excited to talk about? Oh, man. I haven't... Uh, the, the Roman Bath one... Oh. Yeah. yeah, that one I'm really, really keen on finishing uh, that. I'm really curious as to how AOT is going to end uh, overall. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's one of those giants uh, of anime over the last decade or so that uh, really has captured the imagination on a global scale. And I'm very curious mm-hmm. how they're going to close it out. Because uh, there's a lot of build-up and a lot of goodwill that's been forged, especially over, since since season three. So I'm curious. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. 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 Definitely. Uh, so yeah, uh, we can't wait to talk about the rumbling. Um, yeah. Uh, till next time, though. This has been Hit Zero. Amaisa. Goodbye, guys. Ciao.